Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Up, up, and away as the economy starts to come back, bringing jobs with it, and the U.S. sets new records in COVID vaccines. What's not to like? This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. So, in an investment world where so much seems to be going so right, what do you do if you're looking for some distress, some distress somewhere? That's the question we put to acclaimed distress investor and author Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital Management. Uh, well, that's a great question. Uh begs an easy answer. Uh, one answer is that we're uh, active providing solutions to companies that want to recapitalize their balance sheet, uh, change their debt structure in some way, or just add uh, additional liquidity, not distress situations. But uh, uh, there are uh, cases where there's an appetite for credit and uh, and the market doesn't make it available. Uh, we're active uh, around the globe and uh, there is more to do in Asia and in Europe than there is in the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, I think we distinguish ourselves as investors uh, by what we do when our uh, strategy is not I- in great favor. Uh, every strategy goes in and out of favor. And uh, this is the time to uh, try to be resourceful and yet maintain our standards. It's very challenging. Uh, no, no doubt about it, Howard. Uh, look back for a moment at 2020. You had your year-end note that went, sort of went through it. And as I say, it was a remarkable downturn and then snapped back up right away. Right. To make money, you had to move really fast about a year ago right now. I know that you had raised, I think, a record amount of capital, Oak Tree Capital Management at the time. Could you get the money out the door, put it to work fast enough? Um, the fund we raised was actually raised on July 1st. So uh, the greatest opportunities were passed. We used uh, the opportunities that arose in uh, primarily in March, somewhat carried over into April and May, we used to complete the investment of our uh, prior fund. 
So we had a fund that was about 30% or 40% invested uh, at the beginning of uh, 2020, and we got it fully invested. Uh, and that was, that was the, the best of the buying. The market has rebounded. The economy is in the process, I think, of rebounding with remarkable speed. At the same time, it's not even. It's uneven. So let's oh, talk yes. about some of those disparities, particularly in things like travel and leisure. Are there still some opportunities there, perhaps? Because that seems to be lagging behind a lot of the rest of the economy. Yes. Well, you know, the easy calls, the, the, the things that are obviously going to rebound, uh, it, they're not fully back to where they were in times of prosperity in terms of their uh in terms of the investment opportunities uh, subsiding, but uh, they are, if, if it's clear they're coming back, they're treated as uh, certainly coming back. Uh, and to, to get to uh, higher returns these days, you have to be willing to uh, extend credit to somebody who's not clearly coming back. Are there any sectors you're still avoiding at this point? No, uh, we, we were open to anything. I mean, our, our, our style uh, usually constrains us, uh, for example, to not do technology. Uh, but other than that, we're wide open. Uh, Howard, it strikes me that one of the things that's different from anything I think I've ever seen, maybe any of us have ever seen, is the degree to which the government, both on fiscal and on monetary policy, is intervening in the marketplace. Is, is that sort of a, a dampener on your business in the sense that, for example, when it comes to distressed debt, you've got a lot of zombie companies. I read, I think it's like 19 percent of the publicly traded companies in the United States right now are zombie companies, do not generate a, enough cash to pay off their debt. Uh, it, does that really make it more difficult for somebody like Oaktree? No, that well, that's no, that's the that's in short, that's the kind of situation that presents opportunities to us. Uh, if companies have no problems, no exigencies, uh, then then the dis distress investor doesn't have any problem and any active anything to do. So we 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 take companies which are in extremis or producing bad news, where the future doesn't look so great, and if we can buy those securities at the right price, uh, uh, which means a, a price that overestimates the problems, that's how you make money as an investor. Uh, so uh, we don't shy away from difficulties. But isn't there a price support under those companies, if I can put it that way, because uh, essentially money's free. They can borrow more money, even though they're losing money. They're not generating enough cash again to pay service their debt. Doesn't that actually make it more difficult to get the right price for you? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Uh, uh, I mean, the right price for us is 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 to be able to buy things for less than they're worth. That's our goal. Uh, we need uh, cooperation from somebody who's willing to sell things for less than they're worth. Uh, and usually you get that when when the asset holders uh, feel urgency to sell. Uh, what about currency? Uh, where are you on the U.S. dollar? How much does that factor into your decisions? Because no, there are a lot of people we don't take an opinion on currency. Uh, one of the six tenets of Oak Tree's investment philosophy is that our decisions are not guided by macro forecasts. So you don't it, worry about long-term weakness of the dollar? Well, I worry about it uh, uh, for other reasons, not in saying, well, will I invest in this thing which is in pounds or rupees or, or, or minbi or pesos or something like that, and not tactically like that. But, you know, I mean, it, it's a concern uh, what what the U the way the U.S. is behaving vis-a-vis -vis the dollar, uh, but uh, on the other hand, not clear what one does about it. That was Howard Marks, co-founder and co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management. Coming up, we convene our Wall Street Week roundtable of Afsani Beshlas from Rock Creek and Mona Mahajan of Allianz to find out where the investment opportunities are in this land of plenty. 
That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Everything is coming up roses for investors, it appears at least this week. The question is, where are the opportunities and for that matter, where are the threats in all this? And to answer that question, we are convening our very special Wall Street Week roundtable right now of Afsani Beshloss. She is the founder and CEO of Rock Creek and Mona Mahajan. She is the U.S. investment strategist for Allianz. Thank you both for being here. Welcome back. Uh, Mona, let me start with you. Uh, I talk about opportunities and threats. I used to do a SWOT analysis, uh, you know, uh, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats in business plans. Take the opportunities and threats for a U.S. investor right now in this market, given the fact that everything looks pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's been a phenomenal market, really, in many ways across asset classes. In our view, that's been driven by two key themes this year. The first theme is clearly this rotation we're seeing, at least in the equity space, um, from growth into the more value-oriented sectors, at least on a year-to-date basis. And really since November of last year, you know, keep in mind, last November, we saw presidential elections, we saw the approval of our first vaccines. And when you look at sectors like energy, financials, industrials, up nearly 70%, 40%, and 30% plus since that time. Uh, the second theme, of course, is this rise in rates. Uh, the 10 years gone from 0.91, now 165 also supportive of some of those value sectors and putting a little bit pressure on the growth sectors. Um, For us, the opportunity really is we do see a continuation of the reopening trade. We think there's at least one last leg to go. um, And that really, you know, the highest conviction areas that we like there do include those that are levered to higher rates. We think, you know, yields could continue to grind higher and maybe a little bit choppy now, but we see a two handle on the tenure at some point. Uh, in that environment, we think financials continue to do well. Certainly, uh, yield curve plays continue to do well, such as steepeners. Um, the reopening, the true reopening of the U.S. economy, we think those uh, the areas that do well in that environment are those that are levered to better earnings growth, like leisure, travel, you know, think your true reopening sectors. And the final bucket we put in that, the opportunities, is really um, those that are levered to the new policy agenda we're seeing. So mm. uh, parts of the infrastructure market, parts of 5G and cybersecurity that are being lumped into infrastructure now. Now, just quickly on the threats, um, as we are heading to the second half of this year, we certainly are seeing some headwinds emerge. Uh, first and foremost, we will at some point hit peak reopening growth here in the U.S., probably in 2Q or 3Q of this year. Um, we will have, you know, the, the highest growth rates we've seen probably in over a decade. 
Um, secondly, we are seeing, as we noted earlier, yields continue to grind higher, driven by, of course, reopening, but also potentially inflation. And you know, thirdly, I think we are looking at a Fed that at some point, David, will have to come off of this crisis level accommodation. You know, They said in the last press conference, it's when they see it in the data, not in the forecast. Well, that data is certainly going to come to fruition in the next couple of quarters. So keep in mind, we've, we've had a great first half thus far. We might see another leg higher in this value rotation, but at some point we will consolidate those gains. Um, maybe it's seasonal, maybe it's sell in May and go away, maybe not in May this year, but a little bit further out. Uh, but just keep in mind those, those tail headwinds in the second half of this year uh, may start to emerge. Asani, Mona really took us right into your backyard, at least part of your backyard, when she talked about investments leveraged to policy, because you for a long time have talked about climate and green investing, Afsani. Uh, You've been a champion of that. It, we certainly heard about the infrastructure plan, $2.25 trillion, a lot of it directed toward climate issues. That's an opportunity. At the same time, do you need to be a bit of a stock picker, if you can say that, within that, that realm? Not all climate projects are created equal, I assume. You're absolutely right, David, and I very much agree with everything Mona said. I think added to what she said on the infrastructure side that you just mentioned, whether it ends up being 2.25 or 1.9 or 1.6 or you know somewhere in between, those numbers are quite huge. And even if they get spent, some of them more quickly, some of them over time, they're going to have a more growth-oriented uh, kind of impact on the overall economy. And what we're seeing as we are sitting here is unbelievable amounts of investments that are going into that um, intersection of innovation with EV, innovation with, uh, tech, with uh, medicine, innovation with uh, some of the other trends that we've talked about, but in particular, climate-related investments. So I think all of them will be um, also impacting markets in a very positive way, sort of looking longer term. I agree with Mona, though, that we will have some short-term corrections uh, because you know, interest rates are historically low. Even if we had the kind of bond markets, particularly at the long end that we've had this year, we have been historically at a very, very low level of interest rate, and people have got very used to that. Those of us who've been around a few cycles know that it will not last like this, and there will be some sort of impact as inflation picks up even for a short time. Uh, and goes back to, um, to lower levels over longer term. Uh, on the infrastructure, the only last point I want to make is that um, the need for it is in the US, but also the need for it is global. There is huge need if we're going to meet our climate goals to make sure that this infrastructure investments that we're talking about the US are also carried through globally. Uh, Mona, one of the things that we're reading about now is perhaps some risk coming from the divergence we're seeing. Uh, the United States is really going ahead full steam with vaccinations. China, if, is, if anything, doing better than we are on dealing with the, with the COVID-19. Europe, not so much. And goodness knows parts of the lower and middle income countries are lagging behind Mona. Is that simply opportunity for U.S. investors or, or is there also some risk if the U.S. gets too far ahead of the rest of the world? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the themes that we are we're seeing emerge again this year is this return to U.S. what we're calling exceptionalism. Uh, certainly, we have been ahead of Europe, as you noted, in terms of the vaccine rollout um, and really setting up nicely for a strong set of summer months ahead of us. Um, we're seeing this play out in the markets as well. The U.S. dollar, many expected to come into the year uh, continuing to be weak. In fact, we've seen stabilization and even an upward trend. The dollar index is now up about 3% year to date. Um, similarly, in equity indices, you know, the S&P is now back at the top of the pack. 
Um, clearly, there could be a catch-up trade, and it's one thing we're thinking about uh, now, especially as the, U- the U.S. markets have run. There could be a catch-up trade from Europe to be to be had here. You know, if they are lagging just a few months behind us in this vaccine rollout, um, we could see a real reopening of their economies in maybe another quarter or two. Keep in mind, the European indices are more levered to these value cyclical uh, parts of the market. Uh, they have a lot of bank exposure, energy exposure, etc., industrials exposure, and so uh, it is something we're cognizant of and and really thinking about. You know, China and North Asia, as you noted, are ahead of us. So perhaps their peak growth has already happened in the last couple of quarters. And we're certainly seeing that reflected in the marketplace as well as their indices have started to roll over. So, you know, over the next quarter or two, we are certainly seeing this this flight to U.S. assets, uh, both in the equity and bond market. um, And that really has, uh, you know, been driven by the fundamental story behind how the U.S. has outperformed um, from a vaccine and, and COVID perspective. Uh, but just be, be mindful that Europe could play catch up in the months ahead. Okay, thank you so very much for our special Wall Street Week roundtable of Alsani Beschlos of Rock Creek and Mona Mahajan of Allianz. Coming up, you may think you know what cryptocurrency is all about, but Marty Chavez of Sixth Street Partners says it's not necessarily what you think it is. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Wall Street, central banks, and retail investors have one thing in common, their growing interest in cryptocurrencies. According to CoinShares, inflows into crypto funds and products hit a record $4.5 billion in the first quarter of this year. Here's Mike Novogratz of Galaxy Investment Partners. Think about there's $140 trillion of U.S. wealth um, $400 trillion of global wealth. So we're now up to a one half, half a percent of global wealth is in crypto. Uh, and that's growing. I think it'll be a percent by the end of the year. Bitcoin gets the most attention among its crypto peers, but critics of digital currencies raise concerns about their structure and their volatility. I don't completely buy the whole thing. You're essentially uh, saying that we're going to create a store of value and a medium of exchange around something that only exists uh, inside of a computer somewhere. It's not a physical asset. That's Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors. And here's NYU Stern School professor Nuriel Rubini. Bitcoin is not having any income, doesn't have any users, doesn't have liquidity services, doesn't have a utility. What's the intrinsic value of it? It's just a self-fulfilling bubble. Beyond Bitcoin, it's the underlying technology of blockchain that is attracting investor interest. According to CB Insights, startups focusing on blockchain raised about $2.5 billion in just the first quarter of this year, outpacing the amount raised in all of 2020. What it's really doing is it's building an infrastructure to actually transact on. That's Peter Krauss of Aperture Investors. Central banks are also feeling the pressure to create their own central bank digital currencies. A recent survey by the Bank for International Settlements found that 86% of central banks are currently engaged, up from 65% in 2017. The motivation for central banks has been partly to guard against the risk of financial exclusion or digital dollarization if payments shift to privately controlled alternatives. Here's Financial Times editorial board chair Jillian Tett. What the central bank is essentially trying to do right now is a version, a very mild version of if you can't beat them, join them. Um, They're almost trying to disintermediate the disintermediators. Marty Chavez is someone who really knows his way around blockchain and distributed ledgers. He's been part of Silicon Valley startups. 
He's taught the course at Stanford. He's been the CIO and then the chief financial officer of Goldman Sachs. And now he's a senior advisor at Sixth Street Partners. And he says that digital currencies may ultimately hold the key to global reserve currency dominance. The way I would look at it, and actually taught a whole class at, the, at Stanford GSB on exactly this topic, how software ate finance uh, last spring. And the course has one thesis, which is that the way finance is playing out, it's actually arrived. There are all these old dichotomies. Uh, you're on the buy side or you're on the sell side. You're a trader or a salesperson or you're an IT, right? Those categories are all disappearing fast and it's all becoming, you are a producer of some banking and financial services and you've wrapped them in a computer interface, the so-called API. And then you're consuming APIs from lots of other people. And if you're not a world-class producer of these APIs around your products and services, you're dead and you might just not know it yet. So in that sense, I would, I would say what Jamie is saying, I, I agree with him, um, but it means that banks have to get really great at digitizing at technology. And also many banks, not all, have been great and they have been doing this for a long time. How can the banks compete with some of these new startups who can take a lot more risks and be a lot more innovative a lot faster? Well, many banks have been working on this for a long time. So for instance, one of the one of the things that we worked on very effectively at Goldman Sachs for years um, is a group we call Principal Strategic Investments. It was in the trading division. And the idea is go out and find these startups and sometimes collaborate with clients and, and also with competitors to create some of these startups and participate early on in the cycle of innovation and become an investor and a customer of the startups and learn from them. That's been an incredibly successful journey for Goldman and other banks have done variants of it as well. How do you address the build or buy question? And by buy, I guess I include aqua hires where you may be buying a small company in part because the talent that you're getting with it. But a lot of the software that was needed simply didn't exist in the early 90s. And so it was absolutely the right strategy then. But as time passed, we, we changed that strategy and we realized that was no longer working, um, that the world had transformed. There were cloud services, APIs, amazing new tools, and the idea of building it all your own didn't make any sense. And so the new, the new waterfall is first order of business, we would, like, we would like it to be an open source. We would like to use software that's out there um, freely available and participate in the creation of that open source. If that's not going to work, then the next position is let's, let's look for some vendors and we want them to operate according to universal standards. And so we can hold the vendors to account on their reliability and cost and other things. But if it doesn't work, we can switch to another provider, same API. And then the last resort is uh, we will go build it ourselves. That was Marty Chavez of Sixth Street Partners. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this, it's a higher rate than Robinhood. 
a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to complete the week as we do every week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, welcome back. Great to have you with us. I think a lot of the week was given over to infrastructure, whatever that means. President Biden has his $2.25 trillion plan, a lot of semantics about what was included, what's not included. And I want you to address that as an economist. How important is it to get clear about what infrastructure is? Because President Biden said it's bridges and tunnels. Sure, it's also broadband internet. But then he said it's anything that enhances the life of the middle class. That seemed a little broad. Look, what's most important is that we make the investments as a country that we need to, not what we call them. We need better bridges. We need to expand uh, broadband. We need to build more schools. We need to make sure there's adequate housing for uh, low-income families. The semantics really aren't so important. Frankly, I'd have liked to see more traditional infrastructure in this package because I think we're decades behind, and I'm not sure this is big enough to bring us to the forefront, and I'm not sure there's enough really major, large-scale projects. He has $80 billion to help Amtrak's operating uh, budget, but there are no major new uh, systems. So I'd have liked to see a bolder, bigger uh, vision on infrastructure. And the other thing I'd have liked to see, David, is more discipline. Discipline to make sure we procure in a cost-effective way. God knows the First Avenue subway in New York costs seven times as much per mile as the subway in Paris, and they're not especially efficient uh, in uh, Paris. I'd have liked to see more speed in implementation. I've talked many times about a bridge near my office at Harvard, a 300-foot bridge that took them five and a half years to repair. Well, you know, Julius Caesar built much longer bridges in uh, nine days. And I'd have liked to see rigorous analysis, and we may get that analysis, that this spending is going to be incremental. For example, there's no question we should have electric charging stations across America and electric cars, but we built gas stations without the government ever paying. Does the government really need to pay as much as is contained in this bill to get electric charging stations uh, across uh, the country? So I think Democrats are completely right on the need for much more resources. But I think some Republicans have a point when they emphasize efficiency, when they emphasize alacrity, and when they emphasize uh, discipline 
in uh, setting the functions. But this is hugely important for our economy. This is certainly worth, uh, in many of the areas, substantially more government borrowing. So it's hugely important to get the money to do the investment, but it's almost as important to make sure that it gets done right or as close to right as possible. You've worked at the top levels of government. Do we need to rethink the way our government really administers itself in this sense? When was the last time the U.S. government spent $2.25 trillion and did it the right way? Can we have a rigorous system for return on investment, which is what you do in a corporation to say, okay, we'll invest this money, but this is what we expect back? I think we're going to, I think we need, uh, more of that. Look, uh, corporations don't have to negotiate their investment plans with something that is analogous to uh, the Congress. Uh, corporations don't have the complexity and the breadth of the program. And by the way, David, as you know, uh, anyone who's studied the history, for example, of corporate IT systems, will know that there were a lot of white elephants uh, built, tr hundreds of billions of dollars poured into uh, nothingness. So I think it's a mistake to venerate everything uh, the private sector uh, touches. But yes, this should be a huge uh, priority in the design of uh, all of this. But of course, more extensive review can be the enemy of uh, more alacrity, but more, more, more speed. But I think we, with the right kind of administration, uh, can do much better. Take an, take an area like high transmission, high density uh, power lines. The issue there is not lack of money, it's lack of regulatory approval. And we got to figure out how to get the states cooperating so each state doesn't hold up all the other states uh, in uh, that area. I'd like to see President Biden talking more about the importance of doing it well and acknowledging more uh, some of uh, the past uh, failures. On the other hand, I think there are some who seize on the semantic issues, who seize on some of the things uh, that weren't great, who give the Pentagon a complete pass on every failed weapon system. But if some mass transit system in an urban area uh, doesn't work uh, exactly right on schedule or overruns its cost, go into a state of hysteria. And that's wrong. And so I'd say to my friends in the Republican side, let's have some symmetry in what you're prepared to do with respect to military procurement and what you're insisting on in these areas. Larry, another big story this week were the IMF meetings, the, the spring meetings of the IMF. And it really underscored something we're watching, which is an increasing divergence around the world, both in terms of the vaccination programs as well as in the economic growth. We see it even between the United States and Europe at this point. But then when you go to the low and middle income countries, it is quite stark, both on the vaccination rate and also the economy. What can and should be done about this? This is something you've been talking about for well over a year now. Look, uh, what we understand better today than we did six months ago is that this is going to be heavily about the ways in which the virus does, not, does or does not evolve. 
if it stops evolving, we're going to get this problem completely under control. If it keeps evolving, it's going to become an endemic problem. And evolution happens in proportion to how much the virus is all over the world. And that means uncontrolled COVID anywhere is a big threat to people everywhere. And, and this is a critical point that I've been working on, we're going to have one of these things every decade or so. We're going to have a threat like this every decade or so. And we need an infrastructure to make sure that we're constantly watching and ready to stop it at its source at the beginning. Okay, let's wrap this up with a lightning quick round of Summer Says. Start off with uh, central bank digital currencies. Much the vogue right now. We've learned that most central banks are working on a digital currency five years from now. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? I doubt it. It'll have a bunch of stuff with digital accounts, but no real digital currency. We also heard this week uh, from Secretary Yellen, Secretary of Treasury Yellen, about coordinating with OECD on a corporate minimum tax internationally. Is that going to happen within the next year? Bravo, and it's going to be as or more important than uh, the, next, the next trade agreement we reach with some other uh, country. This is the international integration issue of this moment. For some of us living in New York, we got hit with a big new tax. If you made a lot of money in New York, you're going to pay a lot more taxes here. There's a lot of concern about that individual stories about people moving away. But in the larger sense, do you think this might affect the economy of New York State? You deserve to pay more taxes. It should happen. But New York City can't. New York City and New York State can't do it alone without substantial uh, consequences in this environment. And I am very fearful that particularly without federal deductibility, this is going to do a lot of damage to New York's tax base and set off a downward spiral. And finally, Larry, the big story from last week with Archegas, the sort of implosion of Archegas. Should we expect within the near future more regulation of family offices? I wouldn't be surprised, but even more, I'd expect more, more regulation of prime broker lending to uh, family offices. Uh, This didn't, but could have set off a really negative cascade of forced selling and then forced liquidations on the LTCM model. That didn't happen, uh, but it could have, and we've got to revisit those issues. Okay, many, many thanks to our special contributor here at Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Getting more bees with honey than with vinegar, especially if they're rich bees. This week saw a lot of talk about taxing the rich in the United States, whether they're companies or they are people. New York State is doing more than just talking about it. After Governor Cuomo last year pleaded with the rich to stay in New York, this week the New York governor agreed to a budget slapping big new taxes on those making over a million dollars. Taxes that could raise the marginal rate for the richest New Yorkers up over 52%. Only time is going to tell whether the state's 90 billionaires or 30,000 millionaires vote with their feet because of all these new taxes. But we are already seeing what using a bit of honey instead may mean, as the Chinese government plans new tax breaks on the wealthy in Hong Kong, seeking to make up for all those violent demonstrations and the political crackdown, with the result that investment managers have set up more than 100 new companies in recent months. And banks like Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Bank of America, and Morgan Stanley are ramping up their staffing over there. 
none of which is to say that those of us who have benefited from the boom markets shouldn't pay our fair share, much less that we want to trade off civil liberties for tax breaks. But we do have to hope that the people making decisions keep in mind that pesky law of unintended consequences. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.